We're talking about the story, living in the story. So I was, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, my sister was, she's got divorced since then, but she was married to this guy who had some money. And uh, he had a cabin. And we used to go up to this cabin. And they had a guest cabin with the big cabin, and the kids stayed in the guest cabin. We wake up Saturday morning, and my nephew runs up. He's about 10, 11 years old at the time, runs up, and he's obviously looking ill. And he says to us, someone's got to come down and fix the bathroom where the kids are staying. There's four kids down there. And he says, someone used the toilet. And, and my sister had said the toilet, it was, this was right in the spring and you can't use it. We haven't flushed it yet or whatever you have to do to make it runnable. So don't go in there. Uh, it might back up. So Jordan comes up and he's saying, someone used it. It's the grossest thing ever. There is like crap all over the floor. It's disgusting. It's putrid. I can't believe it. Someone's got to go fix it. Now, I have, everyone in my family knows I've got a very weak stomach. Or odors can turn me on a dime. I, I, I was very sensitive to odors. Um, I have to drive, yeah, you don't know him, so I can share this. There's a person I pick up about every three weeks to drive to church from this shelter, uh, and he's uh, mentally challenged, and he has hygiene issues. And sometimes driving him to church, his breath, when he talks to church, he's very excited to see me, so he starts talking to me. And I, in the middle of winter, have to roll down my window and stick my head out, because it's so, I, I, I'm almost ready to, to, to puke. Um, and I'm just telling you this because you need to know how sensitive I am to odors. You believe me? I'm sensitive to odors. It's like, ugh. So, but my sister, uh, everyone else was gone except for my sisters, and, and she had to take care of a baby, so she goes, Greg, you got to go down there and take care of this toilet problem. I go, I can't. You know how I am with odors. I will just upchuck. It's going to be ugly. She says, you, gotta, you just got to do this. So I go down. I said, okay, Jordan, you're coming with me. And so we went, went down. To this, to the bathroom in this cabin where the kids are staying. I open the door and he's like, and I'm like this, getting ready to brace myself. I open it up and I look in. And what I see is the most disgusting thing I've ever seen in my life. And I'm hit with this order where I immediately start dry heaving. I'm, I, I, I go back and I'm like, like this. And, and I, we're both screaming, oh, it's terrible, it's terrible. You know, because the floor was covered, just covered. Okay, so I'm, I'm there. I, I, I'm so ill, I, I can't stand it. And I'm, I, 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 you know, I'm ready to run out. But then Jordan says, wait a minute. You'll see where this is going. Wait a minute. I don't think that's poop. I'm like, what? What? He goes, there's not an order. I go, what are you talking about? It's disgusting. It's putrid. It's vile. I'm, I'm sick here. Because that's not poop. And smell, smell it. There's no order here. So I gradually dare to stand up and I take a little bit of a whiff. And now I can smell something, but it wasn't what I thought I smelled. I turned around and looked at the bathroom. And what it was was like rust. It was all rusty on the bottom. Um, somehow the water had leaked during the winter and it was, it had formed this really, it looked like diarrhea. It, it looked like, like, Almost reddish diarrhea. <laughs> diarrhea with blood. The best. <laughs> Yummy. <laughs> that is disgusting. That is, that's pretty bad, isn't it? 
Okay, so look at this. It was it was rust. There was there was an order of mildew or something, but it wasn't putrid diarrhea. But what I saw and what I smelled was putrid, vile diarrhea. I was I had a physical reaction. I was it was all very very real. I couldn't believe it when I found out that it really wasn't that. It took me some real convincing to see this. What had happened? Look at this. Is I so expected to see diarrhea and so expected to smell diarrhea that when I opened the door, that is what happened. My brain filled in the blanks. There was enough similarities to diarrhea and, and that, that I, I, it, it triggered in my brain all my defense mechanisms. So I filled in the blanks and what I experienced was diarrhea. I experienced diarrhea, but that's what I smelled. <laughs> I almost vomited, though. Isn't this just edifying to hear these stories that Greg tells? The point is this. That's how we all are on everything. Now, that's an extreme example, but it tells us something about the way the brain works. We tell ourselves stories, and the stories interpret reality. And we really do experience these stories as true, even when they're not. We don't have direct access to reality. We always mediate it with our thoughts, with the story that we're telling each other, uh, telling ourselves, and that is what we experience as truth. I really did experience the story I was telling myself in my head. The other night in uh, St. Paul, this made, the, this made it to the, the, the evening news. They had a, uh, uh, some kids were swimming at a uh, YMCA, and all of a sudden, they smelled what they thought was some kind of a toxic odor. And there started to be this steam coming up from the, uh, the pool. And 11 kids had to be rushed to the hospital with uh, headaches, nausea, and in one case, vomiting. It turns out that what happened was someone had spilled some bleach in the back room. And so there's a smell of bleach, and it opened up the door to get the smell out, letting in cold air, which hit the water and caused all these fumes. Not fumes, vapor. Would that make anyone nauseous or sick or vomit or, or have severe headaches? 11 people went to the hospital for that. Why? Because they're telling themselves a story. They're expecting a certain thing. Smell, put together with this vapor. We must be being poisoned. This is a terrorist attack. And they get brought to the hospital. The way we experience the world is, is the story we live in, what we're having faith for, what we're believing towards. What it is to have faith in Jesus Christ is to strive to live, to commit to live in the story of the gospel. Uh, to be, have that to be our, the conversation in our head, the way we interpret the world, uh, the way we experience the world, and to be moving in that direction. A major problem that we have here in America is this. As I mentioned today, we are bombarded with a different story. We're bombarded with the story of living for here and now. We're bombarded with the secular story, the unethical story, the story that we're just complex amoeba, the story that, that it's appropriate when you meet a person uh, that night to go to bed with them, the story that what life's about is chasing the American dream and, and having all the comforts. We're bombarded with that story that gets implanted. We don't have to think about that. That is just what get, gets in there. And then we tag Christianity onto that as sort of an addendum. But see, what we experience as real, if we're not moment by moment 
intentionally living in a different story, what we experience as real is the American story. We believe the Jesus story. We believe the Gospels. But what we experience is real. What moves us, what motivates us, uh, what strikes us as a, as a, a, a reality in our mind, Hebrews 11.1, 1, we talked about that at the Q&A time today, is, is, is the American story. What I love about theology and why I'm so into theology is because theology is the structure of the story that we're called to live in as disciples of Jesus Christ. Uh, it, it tells us the paradigm that we're to uh, uh, be transformed with, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul says in Romans 12 too, over and over again, telling yourself the truth over and against the lies that we receive from the media constantly being bombarded. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, telling ourselves the story, the Christian story, living in that paradigm. A large, it's part of the essence of discipleship is just hearing the story, getting it on the inside and living it out. So the Christian story, let's go back to 101, is about this. Uh, God created this world. He created it. Everything you see is a, is a result of, 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 of his handiwork. There was a rebellion, uh, we're told, in the Bible. Uh, a central part of the story that we tend to ignore is that there was not just a human rebellion, but an angelic rebellion. In fact, the human rebellion is us being caught up in the angelic rebellion. We're co-opted into the civil war going on in the heavenly realms. We were seduced by the enemy. We were supposed to be the viceroys, the, 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 the authorities on this planet, uh, managing the environment and the animal uh, kingdom. We were given authority over that. But we, in our rebellion, this is a central part of the Christian story, surrendered that over uh, to God's archenemy, Satan, and the principalities and powers. The result of that is this. Satan is now called, and here, if you can put that on the slide, I'd appreciate it. The New Testament says that Satan is now the god of this age. I want you to think about these things. The principality and power of the air. The air was the domain of authority in first century cosmology, uh, 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 cosmology the, the view of the world. So he is the main authority in this domain, principality and power of the air. He is the ruler of the world. Jesus three times calls him the ruler of the world. He uses the word archon in Greek, which... Uh, Refer to really who uh, a boss in a region. Uh, who's the CEO? Who's the one in charge? Doesn't mean you're boss over everything, but whoever is in charge of a particular region was called the archon. And Jesus three times is translated usually Lord or ruler or prince. And so Jesus calls him three times the the ruler, the prince, the archon of this world. It says in Revelation that he deceives all the nations. It says he deceives the entire world. 1 John 5 says that he has control of the entire world. Just think about the implications of that. He has control of the entire world. This principality and power has this destructive influence. This is the one who comes to kill and steal and destroy, John 10.10. He is the one who's a murderer from the beginning. He is the, his intentions are evil, and he's got control of this world. He's even got, it says in Hebrews 2, the, the power of death. Jesus came to defeat the one who has the power of death. All that is to say, this, this has massive implications if we let it into our story. We live in a war zone. We live in a context that is being oppressed by a principality and power that is evil, that is dead set against us, dead set against God. That's why this creation is all messed up. This is not the way the world was supposed to be. We live in a veritable war zone. That's why you can see the handiwork of God, but you also see a lot of stuff that's not of God. 
out running today. You just man, I just enjoying the, na- the nature and the deer and the atmosphere and the clouds, the the, the, the trees, the mountains. It's beautiful. The heavens declare the glory of God. Yes, but then we also have killer diseases and mudslides and earthquakes and 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 uh, malaria and AIDS and all sorts of other things that destroy people. Paul says this in in, in Romans eight. He says, this creation was subjected to futility. That word can mean like uselessness or it's, it's just not operative. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage. Apparently the entire creation is in a state of bondage. It's in bondage to decay. It tends to decay. Everything tends to decay, but apparently that's not the way it was supposed to be originally. It is the way it is now. Everything tends to wind down. Call the second law of thermodynamics. You maybe don't believe it now, but, but, but you will before too long. You age and you begin to feel it. And the body runs down and things begin to break and things stop operating the way they're supposed to operate. And you have aches and pains where you're not supposed to have aches and pains. And you start growing hair where you're not supposed to grow hair and you lose hair where you're supposed to have it. It's really a mess. It's ridiculous. Hair on the cheeks. Crazy. And I grow hair faster out of my ears now, which I like to clean with Q-tips. I grow faster out of my ear than my head. What is wrong with this? What's well, the fall? It's the fall. It's bondage to decay. I'm in bondage to decay. You're in bondage to decay. You'll see. You'll see. You wait. You laugh now. You will see. Oh, everything starts to fall apart. But the hope is that we will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. This creation. Enter into this metaphor. Uh, I don't know if you have had a baby or if you have witnessed uh, someone having a baby. I've been there three times. And and the labor pains are are uh, uh, just... Nasty. Man. Freak out. Uh, I'm trying to capture with my memory what my wife was doing. It's like, you did this to me. This is your fault. Honey, this was consensual. You might not remember it now, but it was. No, okay, labor pains are like the worst, I'm told. <laughs> uh, you, you, some things you just got to take on faith, uh, the worst. Uh, and um, the creation is in a state like that, groaning in pain. This is, not, this is not the ideal that God had for the creation. We are in a war zone. And see, if we believe this, it reframes everything. You asked me earlier about uh, spiritual warfare. What role does it play? Well, you know what? It's, it's, it really is central to everything we're about. We're in a war zone. We're not in a vacation resort. See, the, the, the story that we're told from, from, from uh, the American culture is that we're on vacation. So we have a vacation mindset. Uh, you know, we, we, we think about pampering ourselves, uh, living life as conveniently as possible, Getting as many toys as possible, having as much pleasure as possible, grabbing the good life now. That would be, when you're on vacation, that's what you do. And we all need to be on vacation once in a while. We, you want to just relax and stay away from trouble and, you know, just have fun. Totally appropriate when you're on vacation. But if you're in a war zone, it's not appropriate. Imagine a family who is taking a vacation in France and happens to be at no- on Normandy Beach and it happens to be 1944, June 5th. Uh, they're enjoying themselves. This is a little family cottage that they've had. They go there, they're, they're, you know, they put on their little Wii and, and, and are enjoying a martini and playing the games and having fun. 
I'm being a little anachronistic now. I suppose they didn't have we in 1944, but still, work with me here. And so they're, they're enjoying themselves. That's what you do on vacation, right? You have a lot of fun. They don't want to be bothered. They're going to shut down their computers. They're not going to answer the phone. They're not going to take care of bills. No, they're going to have fun. But then imagine the next day, as some of you know, on June 6, 1944, that's when U.S. and the Allies invaded Normandy Beach. And that was the decisive battle that was fought that, that determined the, the, the state of the, the war in 1944. And there was a major, you know, man, the German forces and the British and U.S. Uh, Allied and European forces came. And there's a major battle right there on Normandy Beach. Now, imagine what would happen if this family, all of a sudden, they hear gunshots going on outside their little vacation resort, and there's bombs going off outside their vacation resort, and they're screaming and all sorts of mayhem. Maybe you saw Private Ryan. That was on Normandy Beach, uh, or saving Private Ryan. Um, and, and so the, the guy gets a call from the captain of the ship, uh, out, uh, the U.S. forces, the captain of the whole thing says, hey, uh, I understand that you're an American citizen and that you're vacationing there on Normandy Beach. Sorry to interrupt your plans, but a war is going on, and this is the decisive battle that's going to turn the tide of World War II. We need your cottage. We need you to open that up. We need to bring our wounded soldiers in there. We need you to help out with the bandaging and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we know that you're pacifists. So we're not going to ask you to, to, to shoot guns, but you are. You need, you need to help. you got to open that up. Sorry, your vacation's over. Now, it would be unethical if that family were to say, no, 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 wait, 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 we're on vacation. You can't bother us with a war. No, I'm sorry, yeah, you got people with legs being blown off and, and heads blown apart, and you need protection and you need some, but hey, this is our cottage, we have a right to it, leave us alone. That, see, that, what was normal the day before becomes ridiculous the, the next day. Why? What changed? Well, you were on vacation, but now you're in war. And when you're in war, it's not appropriate to look out for number one to see how pampered you can be and how much you can take care of yourself and how much of the good life you can grab and all those kind of things. It's unethical. It's, it's absolutely wrong. So also, we, we, in our, we are conditioned to believe that we're in a vacation. No one says that, but, but, but the message that's communicated all over the place is, is, is strive for the ideal now, as much comfort as possible now, acquire as many toys as possible now. Which would be great if we were in heaven. But we're not. We're in the middle of a war. A war that is every bit even more real than, say, what's going on in Afghanistan. There are, on a spiritual level, bombs going off all over the place. This is a war zone. There's a principality in power of the air, the one who controls the entire world. Uh, the one who, who uh, is, is uh, says in Luke 4, the one who controls the governments and, and the systems. If there's like any conspiracy theory you want to believe, believe this. There's an evil power behind all the governments of the world. There really is. That's the Bible. It deceives all the nations of the world. And see, if, if you start framing the world like that, uh, it, it totally changes everything. In the, in the Second World War, my dad used to tell stories, my mom used to tell stories about how everything was rationed. Everything was rationed. You know, the salt, the sugar, you know, how many stamps you could get, everything, because everything was directed towards the wartime effort. That's what you do in a state of war. So also, we need to understand that the story that we're to live in is not just a story of, of me and my personal savior. That's wonderful. But it's a story about how we're recruited. When you sign up for this thing, you're signing up for war. And there's a battle that's going on. And we have an important role to play in that battle. Our job is to live in that story. This creation is, is screwed up. Not everything you see is reflective of God's ideal will for people's lives. That's why we're called to pray and live. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
We, we're, we're to pray and to live to bring down God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Because right now, it's a war zone. His will's not being completely done on earth as it is in heaven. There's other wills that are going on here. There's a principality and power of the air. There's war that's going on. And so we come against sickness, and we come against disease, and we come against sin, and we come against everything that opposes uh, the, the truth of God's reign. And that is our warfare. We're caught in the conflict now. We've got to frame it all like that. It changes everything. It changes everything. You hear people sometimes go, why me? How could this happen to me? Because I'm such a good person and I, I love God and I believe in God. How could this happen to my child? How could, you know, which would make sense if you're on vacation. If you're on vacation, stubbing your toe can be a big deal. Oh, I ruined my vacation. I stubbed my toe. But if you're on Normandy Beach, June 6, 1944, stubbing your toe is the least of your problems. you got a bigger frame of reference. Uh, you, you're no longer surprised. You're, you feel fortunate if you didn't take a hit. If you, if you didn't get shot, man, you're blessed. But you don't, aren't surprised when you do or your buddy does, because that's what happens in war. There's bullets going on all over the place. If we frame this, you know, Jesus said, you can stand on this promise. Here's the promises of God. In this world, you will have trials. You will have trials. You will have tribulations. If it happens to the master, it's going to happen to the servant. How come people keep on being surprised when bad stuff happens to them? It's because our frame of reference is an American story rather than the gospel story. And if you frame this as a vacation, well, all of a sudden, now everything is an inconvenience. We're at war. Now, here's the thing. Jesus comes into this world. Uh, he comes in as an act of war. He comes, it says in, in, in Hebrews 2, to defeat the one who has the, the power of death. That is the devil. Uh, 1 John 3.8, he comes to destroy the works of the enemy. He comes to uh, bring a, an end to this war, to defeat the devil, defeat evil, defeat sin, defeat death. He is risen from the dead. And, and, uh, and so in principle, this war has come to an end. And in principle, in fact, the Bible says that all things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. We're given, we're given now, it says, right now, resurrected life. The eternal life of God flows through us. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places now. We reign with Him now. We're holy and blameless now. Uh, we're, we're called His friends now. We're reconciled to God now. In principle, the kingdom has come. Jesus has defeated the enemy. And yet, look around. And you don't have to look very far. The world is still messed up. And we, ourselves, are still messed up. We still have these struggles. How can this be? Is Jesus victorious or not? Did he defeat the devil or not? Is the war ended or not? We, this is a central part of the story. This is, this is crucial for us to get. We live in this curious in-between stage, which theologians call the already and the not yet. It's already true in principle, but it's not yet manifested. Jesus has already won the victory, but we yet live in a cosmos, in a world, in a society, and with our brains that don't fully acknowledge that truth. And an analogy that's often given is, is this one. It comes from Oscar Coleman in a book called Christ in Time. Um, uh, he, he says that what happened, what, when Jesus uh, became a human being, died on the cross and rose from the dead, that was like D-Day. That was like D-Day. Uh, that was like the battle that was fought on Normandy Beach. 
Historians tell us that when the U.S. and the Allies defeated the Germans on the several-day battle on Normandy Beach, it then became certain that Germany would lose the war. It was called, that's why it's called D-Day. Uh, it was the, the decisive moment in the, in the course of this, this warfare. But V-Day, which is Victory Day, that wasn't declared for another year. It took another year of fighting. And very important things were at stake. Battles were fought. Lives were lost. Uh, a lot of stuff went down. Uh, about a third of all losses uh, in, the, in, in the Second World War came between D-Day and V-Day. It, it was still... But in principle, the battle was, was won. So also, when Jesus came and his human being died and rose from the dead, that was our D-Day. That was, in principle, the enemy has been defeated. The war is over. In principle. But we're not yet at V-Day. That's why it's not, this isn't the time to, to, it'd be totally inappropriate for soldiers between D-Day and V-Day to start taking a vacation. To say, oh, I guess the, the outcome's certain so we can just relax. No, there are important, important things at stake. And God calls us to continue with the fight. To really just manifest the victory that he's already won on Calvary and through the resurrection. So we live in a world that is yet under... All those statements I just read about Satan being the principality and power there, or most of them anyways, all the ones except for Jesus's, are, are spoken after the resurrection. Even after the resurrection, though Satan is bleeding to death, though he's in principle defeated, yet he still is the principality and power of the air who controls the entire world and gives the governmental powers to whoever he wa- who wants, and so on and so on and so on. There is a war that is waging. We're in this already and not yet kind of a situation. From God's perspective, I'm sure it's like instantaneous. So see if you can follow this analogy this late at night. Um, although it's early for you because you've got a dance coming on here. So wake up because you've got a long night ahead of you. But imagine this room is totally dark. And then imagine we turn on the light, right? The minute you flip the switch on and the room is full of light, you'd say, oh, it was instantaneous connection between turning on the light, the switch, and having the light filled with room. Yeah, that would be like, there's no gap there, right? You turn on the switch and the room is full of light. But if you were a muon particle, it wouldn't be instantaneous. Muons only live for a fraction of a second. Um, they can actually travel from the outer uh, atmosphere to the earth because they travel close to the speed of light, which because of relativity theory means that they can travel far longer than they should be given the short length of their life. But from their perspective, it's a lot longer. But let's not get into that right now. Uh, but for a muon, for a muon whose very existence is a fraction of a second, if you could see the world, the room from a muon's perspective, you'd see light photons shooting out of the light and gradually taking up the room. From our perspective, it's turn on the light. But from a muon's perspective, whoa, it's quite a process here. So also the Bible tells us that a day with us is a thousand years of the Lord, a thousand years like a day. It's, there's, it's all different. From God's perspective, I'm sure it's, I mean, if you've been living for all eternity, any length of time is going to be a fraction of a second. So Jesus comes, rescues the bride, now we're there. But from our perspective, it's like been 2,000 years, and for all we know, it's going to be another 1,000 years. It's that weird in-between stage. Already defeated, and yet the battle still continues. Our job, Holy Spirit, help us to attend to this central point here. Our job, ladies and gentlemen, if we sign up to be the bride of Christ, if we sign up to be a follower of Jesus, our job is to 
is to mimic him, to model him. He was a display of the future in the present. In fact, look at this passage. It's from Hebrews chapter 2. It says this, You have made them for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned them, referring to human beings, with glory and honor, subjecting all things under their feet. So he's saying that Jesus has, through Jesus, we have been reinstated as the authorities of this earth. Our rightful place as those who are supposed to be rulers of this earth under the lordship of, of, of God. And then he says, now in subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside their control. He's talking about us. So we've got all the power back, right? We, we, it's all under our feet again. But as it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them. We don't yet see it. We just said we got it, but we don't yet see it. It's true, but we don't yet experience it. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them. But we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. He was made a human being. Now crowned, now he's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What the author is saying is this. In principle, we have been restored to our rightful place as the rulers of this earth. In principle, all that was one in Jesus Christ. But we don't yet see that. We don't yet experience it. We still live in this, this world that's under the domination of, of the enemy. But we do see Jesus. He has already been crowned with glory and honor. He is, as it were, a man from the future. He represents, he represents, he manifests the way the cosmos will be when the truth of God's victory is fully displayed. He's the man from the future, a window into, he is what we shall be. First, first John 3 says that when he appears, we shall be like him, or we shall see him as he is, for we shall be like him. In him, we see the way human beings are supposed to be. We see the way the creation is supposed to be. We see what it looks like when God fully reigns in a life, and there is no enemy influence. He, he, he's the one that we're to be keeping our eyes on. In a world that doesn't yet acknowledge the victory of God, he does. And so we keep our eyes fixed on Him. And now our main job, as we fix our eyes on Him, is to be that. When we surrender our life to Christ, He gives us His Spirit. He comes and lives within us. He infuses His DNA into us. He makes us His body. He is our head. And so we are empowered to reflect Him. The the idea that Christianity is mainly about believing something theoretically as though that does anything is just not biblical. Here's what it says in 1 John. It says, whoever claims, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Now, do we do that perfectly? No. But we've got the life of Christ inside of us, the Holy Spirit inside of us, the character of Christ, the kingdom DNA running through us. We participate in his victory. And our job as his bride, as his, as, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, as his soldiers, as Paul calls us, our job is to manifest the future the way he did. To put on display the victory of God in a world that doesn't yet acknowledge it. Whoever claims to, to live in him must reflect that. If you have faith in this, if this is the story you live in, it will affect your life. Paul says, imitate God. Be imitators of God. Live in love. Here's what it means to live in, to, to imitate God. It uses this word mimetai, which uh, uh, we get the word mimic from, mimic, to do exactly what you see another doing. So Paul says, here's what it is to be godly. Mimic God. Do exactly what you see God doing. And where do we see God doing anything? Well, we see it in Jesus Christ. He's God incarnate. 
So Paul tells us, here's what it is to imitate God. Live in love just as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Our job is to put on display the kingdom that Jesus brought. This is what it's all about. To just be who God has called us to be. This is why I say that we're a future tribe. We are called to be a people who, by the way that we live, not by our words only, or even primarily, but by our life, we're to put on display the way the creation is going to be. We're a future tribe. A tribe of the future. Why? Because we belong to Jesus, who's the man from the future. To put... In a world that is not yet acknowledging the victory of God, we're to show what the victory looks like. This is why the Bible calls us first fruits. Have you ever noticed that? First fruits. It says this in James. You read this in several other places. God gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would become a kind of first fruits of His creatures. A first fruits of His creation. Here's the thing. In the Old Testament, the first fruits or the fruit, or the harvest that was picked ahead of time. Whatever, whatever ripened first, you'd pick it. And then you'd offer it to God. You'd take it and you'd consecrate it to God. And it was a way of saying, God, we acknowledge that you are the author of this harvest. Remember, everything hangs on the harvest. If that doesn't come through, you starve. So it's a way of saying, God, thank you for coming through in the harvest. We acknowledge that you're the author of this harvest. You offer it up to Him. And so that, that's an act of trust. You'd rather just eat it all. You know, because for all you know, a famine's going to strike tomorrow, but as an act of trust, you're saying, God, we consecrate this to you, we offer it to you. And so the first, the, off the top of the harvest goes to Him. Uh, it, it's a way of acknowledging He is the author of it all, and we trust you to come through with the rest of the harvest. That first fruits put, uh, the first fruits put on display, as it were, what the harvest will look like when it comes in. You're manifesting now. When all the rest is still in process of being ripened, you're saying, here's what the finished product looks like, and we consecrate it to God. That is what we are called to be, the first pickings of creation. Someday the entire creation is going to be redeemed, but our job is to show what that looks like now by how we live. So it's a little bit like this. And you've been wondering why I have these bananas up here. Now, this isn't going to work very well because I was supposed to do this illustration last night. So we had a very green banana and a very yellow banana. And now the green one's almost as yellow as the yellow one. But pretend that this is all green. Can you see it's kind of green? It's still kind of green. All right. Um, so, you know, this is, an, this is a, a not unripened banana. And this is a ripened banana. And so imagine, we, see, we live in a world that is still a bunch of green bananas. It's not picked yet. It's not ripe. It's not the way it was, it's supposed to be. It's, it's still under the old creation. It's living as though, thinking as though, acting as though, feeling as though Jesus was not Lord and Jesus did not win the victory and, and, and it believes lies and, and, and it's living like it's on vacation when in fact there's a war zone going on and all this, it, it's just un, it's unripened. It's not the way that, that fruit's supposed to be. At least not when you eat it. So we live in a world of green bananas. And in a world of green bananas, we are to show the world what ripened bananas look like. Say, no, you, you know, you, you, you're not created to be green, you're created to be yellow. And, and you're created to be edible. And so in a world of green bananas, we're to show what it is to, I don't know how far to push this analogy, but to be tasty to God. You know, the Bible does say we're supposed to be a sweet-smelling savor unto the Lord. Oh, love bananas. Uh, yeah, so yeah, to, to be to, to be delicious, we're supposed to be delicious to God. Now I feel we're gonna have this picture of God devouring us. No, 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 no. But here's the thing. 
Which I don't hate when people talk with their mouth full, especially when they're preaching. So here, the, the, the point is the contrast. God wants us to manifest the truth of who we are. We're not making this up, uh, that we have to intentionally live in the story because uh, we're told a different story, but we're not making this up. We really are new creatures in Christ Jesus, filled with His Spirit, seated with Christ in heavenly places, holy and blameless in His sight, get all of our life from Him, etc., etc., etc. Our job is just to be that, to, to be fully ripened and peeled. And in doing that, we put on display to a world of green bananas what it looks like to be the banana that you were created to be. Gosh, it sounds bananas. But see, that, that'll create some interesting stuff. Because if you're in a world of green bananas, everyone thinks that this is what's normal. This is the normal. This is what this is. Everyone assumes that if this is normal. We're supposed to be hard, and we're not supposed to be eaten, and we're supposed to be green. And so if you're looking like this, you will look odd. You can't help but look odd. If you're being the way a banana is supposed to be, these bananas are going to go, what is up with you? <laughs> you're all mushy. And you say, well, that's the way you're supposed to be. They're going, no, 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 uh, no, 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 I, the greener, the better, the harder, the better. You know, no one can bite through me. I'm tough. I'm tough and green. And you're saying, well, no, actually you were created for an entirely different purpose, entirely different purpose. They go, you are nuts. You see, you, you, you just got it all wrong. And this is what the Bible means when it says, be a peculiar banana. Uh, you know, be the first fruits, come out from among them. Be a yellow, tasty, pliable banana. I'm paraphrasing here, but you're getting my point. The point is, the contrast is all important. And see, Jesus says that it's our, as we live under the reign of God. This is what it is to live under the reign of God. It's, it's simply to show what it's like when God rules in a life. What does it look like to not be Lord of your own life? What does it look like to moment by moment be surrendered to Him? What does it look like to live in love? Uh, to, to be filled with the love of God towards all people. What does that look like? What does it look like to have a peace that passes all understanding? What does it look like to uh, not be given a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and self-control? We live in a world that doesn't know anything about that. So our job is just to put on display what it looks like when God reigns. That's the kingdom of God. That's the first fruits. And see, among those who are ready, they, they'll see that. And there's a part of them that knows that they weren't meant to be green and hard. And they long to be unpeeled and mushy and tasty. And so the problem is, I want what you got. I, 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 I'm attracted to who you are. That's why Jesus says in, in, in John 17, He says, Father, I pray that the love that you had for me from the foundation of the world may be in them, that they would love one another the way you have loved me. Uh, that the world may know that you have sent me. That the world may know that you have sent me. Father, I pray that they may be one even as we are one. That the world may know. It says it twice in the span of, of six verses. That the world may know that you have sent me. How does the world know that Jesus is real? Well, they can see him. Faith is always visible. Right? They, 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 there's a difference there. And... and as we live in love as Christ has loved us, as we imitate Jesus Christ, as we follow his example, as we strive to do that day by day and, and live out the DNA, this isn't a self-effort, self-help club. No, we're just manifesting the truth of who we already are. But as we do that, that is what pulls people into the kingdom. It's not as we judge them or as we, you know, look. no, no, it's just as we, as we live out the truth of the kingdom, people see the reality of Jesus Christ in our life. 
Our job then is to manifest the future in the present, to be the already amidst the not yet, to be the people of the man from the future, to put on display the kingdom of God in a world that does not yet acknowledge the kingdom of God. In fact, in a world that's under the, yet under the reign of Satan. A good way to move, people ask all sorts of ethical questions, like what, what exactly are Christians supposed to do or cultivate or whatever. Here's, here's a real simple way of getting at all this. Ask the question, will it be in heaven? Will behavior X or attitude X be in heaven? And if it won't be in heaven, our job is to put it off now. And if it will be in heaven, our job is to manifest it now. Our job is to be heaven on earth. As much as possible in a world that doesn't yet acknowledge it, our job is to manifest God's will on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that prayer, and our job is to live it out, to, to put that on display. If it will be in heaven, manifest it. If it won't be in heaven, well, then get rid of it. So it's like this. Someday, someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Our job is to do that now. Someday, God's love will define every square inch of the cosmos. God's perfect love. Our job is to let God's love define every square inch of our being and to manifest that love now. We don't wait for it. We manifest it now. Gandhi was speaking a partial truth when he said, be the change you want to see in the world. Be the change you want to see in the world. We're to have some idea of the world that God is driving towards right now, and He wants to use us to do it. And the way we change it is by being it. Be the change you want to see in the world. The church's job is just to be the church, to be the bride of Christ, to be faithful, to manifest a different way of living, a different life that comes from on high. Our job is not to be the informants of Caesar, to tell him what to do, or to wait around for some social agency to do it, or to hope that, or to complain about somebody else not doing it, or even to wait for the religious organizations to get their act together and start doing it. Our job is just to do it. Just to start doing it. Whatever will be in heaven, do it now. Whatever attitudes will be in heaven, do it now. Whatever won't, get rid of them now. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4, uh, verses 29 through 31, a really good verse, you guys. He says, put away. He said, peel the banana. That's what he's saying. Put away all malice, all slander, all anger, all hostility, all immorality. Put it away. Peel off that old self. Get rid of everything that is not fit for heaven. And in doing, and he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. By living in unforgiveness. And then comes 5.1 where he says, Rather, instead of living that way, live like the new banana that you are, the real banana that you are. Live in love as Christ loved you and gave his life for you. Inner hostility, anger, violence, all those things, our job is to be letting them go. Through the power of the Spirit, as we're learning to submit to God, moment by moment, to let those things go. Let God ripen us and peel us. And in doing that, we put on display, not any kind of a proud way or look at us. No, no, we just humbly go about our lives, but it looks different, and that draws people in. The be- those who are ready for it will see that you know, most people think you're an idiot, you're a fool. And Paul says we should expect that. Following a Calvary lifestyle in a world of hostility and warfare and enemies, that looks foolish. But see, those who have eyes to see will see. And who have hearts to receive will see. And they'll see the beauty of that. In a world that is, 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 is still wracked by evil, our job is to purge ourselves of evil. Someday there'll be no more sin. So our job is to, through the power of God, get rid of sin now. Someday there'll be no more evil. So our job is to purge our life of evil now. Someday there'll be no more violence. And so our job, following the example of Jesus and the commands of Jesus and of Paul, is to purge our life of violence now. Violence in thought, violence in attitude, violence in action. Someday there'll be no more greed, so our job is to purge all greed out of our life now. Someday there'll be no more poverty, so our job is to go come against poverty now. 
You see, and in doing that, that's how that that's how we're kind of laying down the runway strip for 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 for, for Jesus Christ to return and set up His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Someday there'll be no more sickness, and so our job is to come against it now through prayer and 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 through other means that God God gives us. That's why Jesus He didn't come around and just sit around saying love, love, love. No, He was an activist. He was an activist against poverty, against everything in society that uh, disagreed with God, against sickness and disease. Our job is to be coming against that now. Someday there'll be no more there, there'll be no more divisions along racial lines. So our job is to live free of those racial divisions now. That's not PC talk. That's kingdom talk. The Bible says that we're to be one new humanity, right? And there's there's now neither Jew nor Gentile. With all those walls have come down. Someday there'll be no more social economic class divisions. So our job is to purge ourselves of all that now. And to manifest, what does it look like for a tribe to be free of class distinctions and racial distinctions and gender distinctions and all those kind of judgments? What does it look like for a tribe of people to really be manifesting the love of God 24-7? Someday there'll be no more divisions along national lines. And so our job is to live free of them now. The world invests such significance in all these kinds of things. Oh, what nation do you belong to? Who's your leader? What gender are you? What race are you? What ethnic, what culture? What class are you? The world's, the story of the world is full of that kind of stuff. Our job is in the light of Christ to let go of all that. That's old banana stuff. And put on display a new humanity. To put on display a tribe of the future. The contrast is all important. Someday there'll be Everyone will acknowledge there's only one allegiance and one Lord and one ruler. So our job is to manifest what that looks like now. To have one alliance, one allegiance, one Lord, and one ruler. And to put that on display by how we live. The contrast is all important. The contrast is all important. And this is what it is to be a faithful bride. When you... All the imagery of the Bible dealing with Marriage has this connotation. When you marry somebody, you are now forsaking all others. You're saying, I pledge myself to you. I close all other doors. My allegiance is to you. My fidelity is towards you. I, I, I will honor uh, and, and cherish you. And uh, you close everything else. The contrast is all important. I have a relationship with you that I will not have with anybody else. When we marry Jesus Christ, the contrast is all important. And to use biblical imagery, insofar as we live in contradiction to his lordship, we're committing adultery. Insofar as we have competing allegiances and, and are living out the story of the American dream, we are committing adultery. And we're blurring, at best we're blurring, we're murking up the beauty of the kingdom that we're to be putting on display. And so throughout the Bible, you find God calling people, and this is as true in the New Testament as it is in the Old, we be my faithful spouse. Come out from among them. Be different. Don't live the way they do. They lord over one another, but you don't do that, Jesus says in Matthew 20. They chase after all this stuff. Matthew 6. Food, shelter, clothing, that's all they think about. But no, your job, your job is to be trusting me, to look into me, to be faithful towards me. And the contrast is all important. Now, the, 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 the tension is this. We are still in the world. You, you, you can't, 
You, you can't jettison out of this thing. We have to live in this tension where, you know, in fact, we do still age. We still, the world is a not yet world. And, and, and so we, there, there's all, there's all, you know, you gotta participate in systems that, that are not perfect and, and, and there's all sorts of ethical decisions you gotta make about where you work and all these kind of things. There's a lot of stuff you gotta figure out and there's no one right answer to a lot of that. But that's what it is. To be, to be the bride of Christ means you're always at least listening to Him and seeking His will on all matters and learning how to do that 24-7. So I, I close with this, with, with, with this challenge. Will you tonight commit to being a faithful bride? It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but it means, of course it doesn't mean that, but it means that you're not going to just wink at imperfection. You're not going to, you're not going to poo-hoo the things in your life that you know are not in line with God's will. And will you reconsecrate your vows to Him? It's the kind of thing that married couples have to do once in a while. It's like, you know, we've been through a period here where we're not connecting. We need to renew our vows and say, I do, and say, I'm in this, and my fidelity is all towards you. And can we do that now? We're to commit to living in this story, uh, to not living like you're on vacation, but rather being aware of the warfare and being used in this warfare and revolting against all the things in the culture and in the world that are contrary to his, his life. He proposed to us by dying for us. That's his proposal. Will you marry me? And our response, when we say yes, it's to die to ourself. We reciprocate. I die to the old self, that old way of living. And that's what God's calling us to renew tonight. It's not a self-help thing. It's not something you do on your own, own power. It's rather something where you say, God, will you ripen me? Here's my intent. Here's my heart. I want to be faithful. I want to live for you. I want to con- contrast with the society and with the world insofar as it's not in line with your will. Will you ripen me, Lord? Ripen me. And then, with God's help and His empowerment, to say, Lord, peel away everything in my life that you know doesn't belong in there. So close your eyes for a moment here. I, I just, let's get honest with God. The only thing that matters is being real. It really is. God only deals in the commodity of reality. So there's no point in pretending. Just be honest. Not in a judgment, condom way. That, that, that's the accuser. But just to say, God, here's my heart. It's a good exercise to do every day. Lord, will you show us right now what is real? What is real? And Lord, we ask that you, for those in this room, and I, I, I trust that it's the majority of us, if not all of us, who really want to be a faithful bride, will you right now, Lord, reveal to us areas that need to be ripened and areas that need to be peeled? Things that maybe we're hanging on to that, that we ought not to be hanging on to. And Father, will you, by the power of your Spirit and by your grace and mercy, empower us to let go of the anger or let go of the judgment towards others, to let go of the unforgiveness in some cases, to let go of maybe ways of meeting needs in our life that are not from you, uh, ways of feeling acceptable, but they, are, they, they involve behaviors that are not of you. God, help us to let go, to peel us, Lord Jesus. Peel us. Strip it away. All malice, all immorality, all judgment. God, help, show us areas of our life that need to be relinquished. We offer them up to you. Thank you for loving us in the midst of the process. Thank you for loving us when, when we were and while we yet are green and hard. Thank you for loving us into the freedom of being new creatures in Christ Jesus. 
And we just trust that you that began a good work in us will see it through to the end. We entrust you with it all in Jesus' name. And the bride of Christ said, God bless you guys. God bless you guys.